Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. Folks, the uh, views that I expressed on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Today, we're going to be speaking with, uh, to my mind, one of the greatest healthcare leaders and change agents of our time. He has inflected the arc of medical history when it comes to the delivery of care and outcomes of care in terms of quality, safety, and reliability. Uh, his work and the derivatives of uh, his work and the movement he's been a leader in have saved countless lives and will continue to do so for years to come. Uh, it's my great privilege to welcome Dr. Donald Berwick to this conversation on creating a new health care. Dr. Berwick, uh, and I'm going to go through a very uh, brief uh, list of some of his accomplishments and backgrounds. We could spend most of the time today just going through this, but uh, I'm going to highlight it. Uh, he is pr pr President Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Healthcare uh, Improvement. This is an organization that uh, Dr. Burke co-founded and led as a president and CEO for 18 years. He is clearly one of the world's leading authorities on healthcare quality and improvement. In July of 2010, Dr. Burke was appointed by President Obama to the position of Senior Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, a position he held until December 2011. He's also served uh, in numerous roles, including Vice Chair of the United States Preventive Services Task Force. He was the first independent member of the Board of Trustees of the American Hospital, Hospital Association. He served as the Chair of the National Advisory Council for the agency, uh, or of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. He is an elected member of the Institute of Medicine and has served two terms on the IOM's Governing Council. He was also a member of the IOM's Global Health Board. Dr. Burke has served on President Clinton's Advisory Commission on Consumer Protection and Quality in the Healthcare Industry. Dr. Burke is a pediatrician by background and has served as Clinical Professor of Pediatrics and Healthcare Policy at the Harvard Medical School. He's also a professor of health policy and management at the Harvard School of Public Health, and he is on uh, the staff of the Boston Children's Hospital, Mass General, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Uh, he has received numerous awards, too numerous to mention in this podcast, but uh, one that I'd like to highlight. Um, in 2005, he was appointed Honorary Knight Commander of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. This is, folks, the highest honor awarded by the UK to non-British subjects in recognition of his work with the British National Health Service. Dr. Berwick is the author and co-author of over 160 scientific articles as well as six books, and he currently serves, uh, amongst other uh, duties now, as a lecturer in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. On a, on a more personal note, uh, I can tell you I've had the great privilege of uh, interacting with Dr. Berwick on and off over the past many years, and uh, there are very, very few moments in my professional history I can, I can recall that were as moving and meaningful to me uh, as sitting in a hall with thousands of other people as well as thousands connected virtually during the IHI uh, National Annual Forums and listening to Dr. Berwick speak. Um, and I, I have to say that uh, each time, uh, each and every time I've heard him speak, um, it felt like history in the making. His storytelling, his technical prowess are, again, to my mind, unparalleled in this particular area of quality and safety and reliability in healthcare. He has a remarkable grasp uh, of the history and the science of quality improvement, as well as a keen understanding of the underlying meaning and purpose of it all. I would urge you, uh, those of you who are listening to this conversation, if you have not read or listened to Dr. Berwick, I would Google, YouTube him. I would, uh, I would suggest you purchase some of the books that have uh, his, um, his lectures. Uh, you will be inspired, educated, and motivated as I have. So, Don, I, I apologize for the long intro. I hope I haven't embarrassed you uh, too much, but um, I just uh, felt you you deserve to uh, be recognized uh, for the work you've done um, 
it's uh, again in my mind just unparalleled your contributions over over nearly um it's I, I think your your contributions in this area uh and your staying power are coming up onto four decades now so it's it's a long time welcome good morning how are you i'm fine Zevin. thanks for that extraordinarily generous introduction it's a pleasure to join you uh, it's it's uh, sincerely my great pleasure. So we're we're going to jump in, and, and Don, I'm going to you know this podcast is called creating a new healthcare, and and as I I mean I've known your work and studied your work uh, and followed you and, and the IHI uh, for many many years, but uh, I did do a, a bit of research over the past couple of weeks, um, and uh, there are literally two or three different interviews I, I have questions for. Uh, one would be just about you as a person, um, and, and I have so many questions I would want to ask you. But uh, and another one would be on on your history, and and again, you've really been in the thick of uh, this movement for decades, and and so that is an interview in and of itself. But the interview I really want to focus on here for uh, for the purpose of this conversation and this podcast is about creating a new healthcare. So I'd like to focus on the future of healthcare. Uh, where we are now, but more importantly, where we are heading and what we need to be do to to really optimize the near future. And the first question is um, is really a series of questions is centered on uh, something that you wrote, uh, I think, and began speaking on a couple of years ago, which is this third era of medicine. And and for those who are listening uh, to this podcast, uh, there are uh, nine or ten items that Dr. Berwick outlined. Uh, a few that we should be moving away from or decreasing, and a, mo- a few that we should be moving, in, uh, leaning into this. Uh, and I'll, and I, I haven't queued Dr. Berwick up, so Don, I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, I, the ones that you have mentioned in terms of uh, backing down on the idea that we should stop using uh, metrics in an excessive way, that we should abandon complex incentives and less reliance on the market. That we could, we should decrease the focus on financials. We should avoid the uh, prerogative of the individual, um, and then uh, and reject greed. And then, in terms of moving towards, we should reconnect to the science of improvement. Uh, we should move to greater transparency and greater civility. And uh, finally, we should focus on patient centeredness, really listening to our patients. And so, I have a number of questions about this. But before I jump in into that. Do, do you, is there anything else you want to say about this third era of medicine? What what drove you to create it? And, and I know you've been talking about it and writing about it, so maybe some background on it. Sure, thanks, Jeff. Um, this is amateur sociology on my part, but you know that speech and that that framing emerged from my sense of how much combat there is, how how frequently. Conversations about creating the new healthcare that your podcast is about uh, uh, take the tone of, of a fight, and I and I was and I was thinking, what 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 are we fighting about? And uh, th- I think there are a lot of different important answers to that, but the one I settled on is this this framing of two eras in conflict: the era I call era one, which is about professionalism. It's it's the idea that. The doctor's noble. The, the the profession has knowledge that others cannot access. That uh, we will self-regulate. That we'll use science. There's there's an aura around medicine that goes back millennia, and uh, that's you know I relate it to my father's life. My father was a doctor in a small town in Connecticut, and and he was quite royal. I mean, you know, everyone revered him, and uh, he had special privileges because of his role as a doctor, and that's sort of how I was schooled. You know, you put on a white coat, you uh, you stand while the patient sits, you uh, you speak with authority. Um, there's there's a lot of um, romance in that, and and there's a lot of dignity in it, but there's also a lot of isolation. The profession kind of judging itself. That's era one, the era of professionalism. Era two was. Um, what emerged really in my professional lifetime as as the uh, data began to emerge on the performance of healthcare, and it was very disconcerting back to courageous people like Jack Weinberg and others in really the mid-20th century who started to look at variation in practice, at defect rates, at um, safety problems in healthcare, uh, eventually at costs and, uh, and waste in healthcare, and most of the data were very... Uh, troublesome. Uh, high rates of injuries to patients, high rates of variation, uh, indignities in care, injustice. And the two eras, as I 
as I un- understand it, they collide. Uh, you know, this, the, the, the proud and responsible and self-sufficient physician or, and nurse and pharmacist, it's, it applies to all professions on the one hand, and then this evidence of defect on the other. And the, this era, too, emerged, which was an era of control. It's what we're living with a lot now, uh, accountability, uh, pay-for-performance, incentives, public measurement. Um, and it, it's very dissonant with that earlier sense of the profession as in charge of its own affairs. And that's among the collisions that I think we're living with, and it produces a lot of trouble, demoralization, gaming, excess costs, uh, uh, misleading endeavors where where we we go where the light is instead of what's important. The era three that I began to imagine is beyond the conflict. It's to understand what the foundational... uh, Charter might be for working better together. It takes not. It takes respectful account of the important parts of professionalism for sure, and it takes respectful account of the important parts of transparency and proper payment and econometrics. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to a vision of a much better system. And the, the, the principles, the nine principles that you, you recited, which were sort of my first draft, had to do with changes of um, mindset and priorities that I think would support a much more, an era much more convergent on the interests of patients and families and communities. One example is is the measurement regime. When, you, when you're coming from era one as a professional, you might want some measures, but they'd be closely held, and they would not—they would not be about accountability. They'd be about maybe learning. In era two, the measurement's about accountability and incentive and reward and punishment, and and it's just ballooned. I mean, we're dealing with mm-hmm. an insane amount of metrics uh, that hospitals or clinicians deal with, and it it impedes work. It doesn't help work. So one of the nine principles I outlined is let's get let's put measurement on a diet and use it for the purposes of learning and improvement, uh, not for uh, n- not as tools in combat. Uh, I, I won't run through the other eight principles, but they all re- reflect my thinking about how to move away from this, this um, conflictual circumstance. And, and I want to dive into a couple of them uh, and ask you uh, a number of questions about this. But before that, j- just to sort of level set for folks, um, this movement that you've uh, really been a leader in for decades and um, you know a visionary in and and were uh, championing way before uh, most of us were uh, were aware the you know the underpinnings of all of this you know, going back even to era two and 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 now is we're doing this for a reason you know and i often like to start my podcast with you know what's the problem we're trying to solve and as you're talking and i'm I'm seeing your history and the work you've done, thinking about going back to 1999, uh, you know, to Errors Human, that uh, Institute of Medicine report where you and your colleagues uh, really shocked, I think, the nation and the world by reporting uh, the, you know, the 100,000 100, or so deaths that were occurring every year uh, in the U.S., uh, avoidable, preventable deaths because of the lack of reliability, the uh, unnecessary uh, and inappropriate variation in care. So this is where it came, you know, in, in large part, to my mind, where the, the, the real problem, the underlying problem and the need, and of course, we have more recent data, uh, that report uh, from, a, I think, a couple of years ago in, in the Journal of Patient Safety and Quality, uh, saying that, uh, you know, demonstrating to us that somewhere now between 200 to 400,000 deaths a year occur within the healthcare system, and these are avoidable, preventable deaths, m- making healthcare literally one of the leading causes of death in our country, literally the delivery of healthcare. And so th- this is, this is I think, again, what's undergirding uh, the movement and everything that you're doing, and it seems to me this third era of medicine is, is you're saying, look, we've, we, you know, the purpose is is right, the intention is right, but we've got to course correct uh, uh, a bit because it's just not a, the, we've kind of gone a little bit, or we've gone overboard with some things, and other things we we need to really shore up that we're not doing enough. Is that is that capturing the essence of of what you're trying to do with this? Yeah, we're here to relieve suffering and, and prevent it. Uh, that. It's all about patients and families and communities. The the best framing that I've encountered 
uh, in answer to the question, what are we trying to get done, uh, came from my colleagues John Whittington and Tom Nolan. John is a, a physician in Peoria, Illinois, and a faculty member with IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, a brilliant man. And Tom Nolan was my main mentor, uh, himself a uh, protege of W. Edwards Deming. And for decades, Tom has been really my teacher about the sciences of improvement. John and Tom, in about 2006 or 2007, came forward with a, a kind of framework for AIM, and they, they, they call it the triple AIM. And it says that in answer to your questions, Ev, what are we about, they say three things. That's what we're trying to accomplish for society. Uh, better care for individuals, so all of the defects you just talked about don't occur. Safe, care is safe, effective, patient-centered, timely, efficient, equitable. The care is good if you have a heart attack or need a checkup or whatever. Better care. Second aim, they say, is better health, and the epidemiology is really clear, which is that you can't get better health just through healthcare. Healthcare is rather a weak lead, but there are plenty of determinants of health that we can work, or can work on if we wish to. And the third aim is lower costs, lower per capita cost, especially in the United States, but actually in most other countries too. Healthcare sort of confiscates resources. It's such an important and charismatic endeavor that when it wants money, it gets money. And that money comes from somewhere. It comes from laborers, or uh, or from businesses, or from or from other government investments like housing, or transport, or education, or criminal justice. And and so, with the evidence of high levels of waste in healthcare, which are estimated quite formally to be at least a third of what we're spending, uh, the part of the social need is is to reduce the amount of money we're spending on healthcare per capita. And they say that triple aim, better care, better health, lower cost, is the, it represents the, the set of goals, a system of goals simultaneously to be pursued through whatever method we choose. The method I choose is change. It's improvement. Uh, the error, too, chooses accountability and um, incentives. Error one chooses professional heroism. My view is neither <laughs> heroism nor incentive hold the keys to the triple aim. The triple aim is a, is a, it's a shared enterprise of redesign. And uh, you're absolutely right. The, 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 way to get on, the way to get back to sensibility is to, is to, constantly be, is, is to remain constantly aware of what the goals are. Better care, better right. health, lower cost. Thank you. That, that was, uh, it, it's, um, I, I think, that reminder of the triple aim and, and where it came from and why it came about and uh, how it's still a, a, just a, a great uh, set of guiding principles, uh, really, really helpful. You know, you, you hit, and, and the first of the nine principles in this third era, you know, you went to this, this issue of uh, incentives um, uh, and, um, and, and accountability. It, it clearly is a, it, I mean, it seems to me that's important. Uh, that's a really important uh, tool or lever to use to have metrics and to have accountability in some way. But you're, you're saying that we've gone way overboard. And like you said, I love the way you put it. We have to put metrics on a diet. Um, and you've also talked about the, the market because I hear a lot about from whether it's policymakers or, um, or, or, or folks in government or uh, leadership, myself included, at the providers on the provider side, and for sure you hear it on the payer and on the employer side, is a, a, an intense focus in, in quality committees. In fact, I was sitting in a quality committee and patient uh, safety committee yesterday, and, and the conversation literally begins and then is consumed by this focus on what are you measuring. And again, I mean, you, you, you led us in, into that yourself as a leader decades ago, and, and it's clearly important, but how are you framing it? What would you tell us about how to, how to put metrics on a diet? And also, what should we be talking about uh, more instead of just talking about the metrics? How do we course correct? How would you, how would you guide us? It's leadership dependent. Um, you look, if you're, if you're going to get better, and we need to get better, the triple, we're very, very far from the triple aim, and it is accessible if we change. But if you want to get better, you kind of have to know how you're doing. So at least reflection, if not quantitative measurement, are part of any sensible approach to getting, getting better. I do want to editorialize for a minute, which is that the, not all measures are quantitative. The inquiries measurement, reflection is measurement, and we need to broaden our view of that, but but I, w what we've done now is we, we've we've put 
cart before the horse, and the cart is the measurement, and the horse is improvement. So I, 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 to me, the key to this is to re-establish or, or establish a, a leadership commitment to approaching the improvement of complex systems scientifically. The, the principles are, to me, they become almost obvious, and, and they, they are the basic notions that I learned from W. Edwards Deming and Joe Duran and other scholars uh, who really, really went into this question about how to, how to complicated human things get better. And the answer is not simple. It's complicated. It involves um, clarity of aim, a whole new way to engage the, the, the workforce in, in spirit and intent uh, through joy and growth and development and respect for their own motivations. It involves proper use of measures and proper interpretations. It involves systems thinking, which is absolutely key. Uh, there are a list of principles here. When you understand that, when you really understand how, how things get better, uh, you then you then hire measurement. It's your servant. You you bring it in to help you when you need it. It's like like you turn on your headlights when you're driving your car. But it doesn't run you. It's not it's not the it's not the boss. It's the servant. In era two, what we've done is we put the measures at the forefront. And then you're right. Everybody sits around talking about how will we measure and do we have the reports and 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 are they accurate and and it's just it's it's very wasteful. <laughs> You know, I, 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 like I said, I, I've been I've been uh, listening to your talks again and and uh, and, and 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 reading some of, of the things you've written, and and I will tell you, even in the last two weeks, I've really been impacted by this particular point you're making. It, it seems like we've, um, you know, if I if I could sort of characterize this, it seems like we we are so dependent on turning that light on, turning the flashlight on in, into the dark, and that becomes the only tool we have and focus on. And it, it, is, it is the beginning. It's, it's part of it. But if that becomes it, then, then you, know, you, you get into this, this problem of, well, it, you know, how we do it is, is either secondary or even not really fully or, or even explored. And, and what I've been experiencing lately is this idea, okay, great, we have the metric, I, I get it. Uh, but what are we actually going to do to improve care? And, and your uh, articulation of Deming's principles of, of variation and uh, system change, um, it, you know, and even, even including the psychology uh, of people working together, those three or four major principles that he defined in Duran, it, it, it is almost as if we've, we've um, forgotten uh, that there's a whole other uh, science of improvement and systems that we have to work on. The 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 metric is just, you know, it's just to monitor how are we actually, you know, are we actually making the improvement uh, that we are working on. And so it, it feels like we've, uh, at least to me, it seems like we've lost a little bit of track on that in in our in our intense focus on on and reliance on these uh, metrics, and then of course on the incentives, right? Indeed. Uh I mean, I, sometimes I sound to myself like an old fogey here, and I don't, I don't want to be just backward-looking, but look, uh, over the 20th century, due to a lot of intellectual trends, uh, th there, was a, there was research, hard-thinking investigation about, uh, about science, system sciences, which is, uh, and, and healthcare is a system, remember, we, we very highly interactive, nonlinear, difficult-to-pin-down endeavor, shared responsibilities and complex interactions. So, yeah, there were sciences. And we, it so happens that, that at least these two scholars that I referred to, W. Edwards Deming and Joe Duran, in the mid or late 1900s, um, they be, kind of pulled it together. And they, they became bridge builders between intellectual disciplines that matter in complexity and day-to-day -day work. And they're not, they're not, this isn't the Bible. I mean, it's not like they wrote the final word. But they really, they really did some pretty good work. And they're not alone. I mean, there were others. Douglas McGregor, for example, a very underappreciated scholar of human motivation. Chris Argerus at Harvard Business School, a uh, student of organizational interactions, and many others. But Deming and Duran are particularly powerful. And they, 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 I quote them because they pulled together a lot of knowledge about leadership. Deming's famous framing, the one you just referred to, he called it profound knowledge. I think that's an unfortunate term. But he said, look, leader, if you want to 
really help things change, there's four, there's four areas, four disciplines you, you probably need to master. The first is the nature and, and, and dynamics of systems. You need to become a system scholar. Second, variation, which is you've got to really understand a bit more about statistics and how to interpret numbers and variation. The third is psychology, which is a big kind of potpourri of topics related to intrinsic motivation and, and uh, group process and uh, human perception and adult learning. And then the fourth thing he said we need to master is is the fame is the now hopefully well known plan do study act cycle. It's the idea of learning how in a how in a complex environment you can learn continually the way a child learns to. To, to, to walk or the way a, a, a good baseball player gets better at batting. You learn by trial and learning and trial and learning. So he said those four disciplines, systems, statistics, and variation, hum- psychology, and epistemology, learning, th- these are areas for mastery. And if you don't master them, his warning is you're going to get yourself in some trouble. You won't understand systems. You'll become confused. You'll misinterpret variation. You'll misinterpret motivation, and you won't support testing. Now, my observation in the 30 or 40 years you referred to is he's sort of right. I mean, if you take those ideas and you begin to try to lead that way, things get better faster. But the observation you made, Zev, I completely agree with. When I go to corporate retreats now or meet with hospital executives or clinical leads, I don't want to be rude, but I really think very, very few of them have ever read a word of, of Deming or Duran's work. They've, they have not looked at the basics of systems theory or uh, human motivation, modern understandings of human motivation. They're looking for a silver bullet. They're looking for a program, you know, lean production or Six Sigma or whatever that'll solve it. No, no, this is about mastery. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but um, I... I I think this is important stuff, and not the Bible, but very, very important. And I, my, so one of my ideas about Era Three is, hey, let's get back to school a bit here. Let's go back and check these classics and discuss them and try to master them. You know, I, I when when I first uh, in the research I've done uh, on you came across this particular point you make, uh, I, I, you know, I felt a little bit defensive about it, and. Um, but as I started to think about it more and, and read more and listen to uh, some of your lectures, uh, it, it really, and then began to just observe my own thinking and my own actions. And kind of, I, I have to say, I, I am in, in complete agreement with you on this. Um, it, it is, um, you know, across the country, you see these, um, you see departments of quality and uh, maybe, maybe little nodes of expertise. And the same is true for innovation. And to me, it seems the future uh, will should be more along the lines of uh, the 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 uh, clinical leaders as well as the non-clinical uh, leaders and administrators and managers should be schooled all of us in in you know these these uh, this so-called profound knowledge that Deming outlined in terms of variation and systems. It 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 should be just sort of our standard. Uh, way we work, you call it the theory of work. It sh- it it shouldn't even be something we we have to think about. It should be the way we are trained, developed as professionals, and it becomes part of our daily work. Uh, again, I, I I I've really been impacted by by you in the last few weeks on this, and um, it, it is uh, I, I find myself in these meetings now asking the question: This is great that we we have the metric and we talked about the metric, but what are we actually going to do to improve care? In a systematic, sustainable, reliable way, and um, it seems like the meeting ends, and that conversation hasn't happened. And I, I keep on waiting for that. And, and again, I don't want to overstate it because I, I, I actually do think there's a lot of work that goes on in terms of, of uh, you know, programs and initiatives. But, um, but I agree with you. I, I, I think you know one question I have typically at the end of uh, this podcast, and I'll have it for you as well, is what, what is you know is there a take home point? Is there something you would say a call to action? And you know, I'm not ending the interview right now, but I, I actually do want to pause and sort of say, I think you just gave us a call to action. I, I, you know, and maybe I'll, I'll ask this question along this lines: If you were going to give a direction, and, and magically everyone would follow what you said, 
What would it be to the leaders of hospitals, the boards and the senior leadership and management along these lines? What, what would you tell us we should do? Um, first, let me say, I don't, I don't think I'm smarter than, than the people you're just referring to. I mean, they, they have a lot of good stuff they're doing, so I don't want to sweep my hand across the table and say, you're all doing it wrong and you need to change. I don't think that's true. I, I, but I would, I would advise boards and executives to take cognizance of some of the basic principles of what I'll call science, scientific improvement. And, and there are two or three that I would call their attention to. The first is clarity of aim, constancy of purpose, Deming called it, which is you, you, uh, constancy of purpose for improvement. Are, are you there, what, are you, what are you there for? Pick the stuff that you really want to make better, and that's your job, is the constant uh, nurturance of, of um, aims. Uh, I don't see that kind of clarity. I think the aims a lot of boards have are kind of get through the storm or something a little bit more mechanical, like increased revenue. They don't the aims for quality. I don't see is cl- cl- clear. Take the triple aim. Look at it. Ask yourself: better care, better health, lower cost. What are you going to get done for the people you serve? I think the methods then matter. It's, there's only two parts to the quality journey: one is aim, and the other is method. And so, then, by what method will you? Seek that. Now, I would say if I had to give one, maybe one or two pieces of advice, one would be uh, listen to the patients. They have knowledge. And, and this isn't a focus group and it's not one person on your board or it's not an interview. It's really, really get the voice of the people you serve into the room all the time at every level governance improvement work executive decisions budgeting always have the voice of the people you serve present give them power and the second would be uh, embrace interdependency the, because heroes aren't the solution anymore if they ever were it's dialogue it's it's working together and if you, you need to set the context in which the people who need to get the job done have the opportunity to be in each other's presence and and share all the time talk all the time that 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 time for interaction is very important one of the problems with metrics that you need to worry about is it can get in the way because if the metrics are about parts if you're measuring how dr x performs or unit y you're going to sub-optimize dr x and unit y you will not get a great system you'll get one that's very much focused on its own boundaries and that's not good so I, I value interaction. When I, when I took over CMS for President Obama, of course, th- these were the principles on my mind. And, and I, I, I mean, I could tell you many stories where my intuition was get, the, get them in a room, get the people who are actually part of the system but don't know it together in a room. And let's talk. Let's talk about how we're going to get this done together. And I think that's fundamental to leadership. I know that's not a co- complete answer to your question, Zeb, but those are some of the some of the top line uh, pieces of advice I'd offer. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And in fact, I want to pick up on this issue of of listening and speaking. And there are, there are uh, some um, movements that have emerged recently uh, that I did want to ask you about. Uh, one of which is this uh, patient reported outcomes measurements. And so this idea that we are looking at metrics that are <clears throat> important to us from a, a, a clinical perspective and yet may not uh, be as meaningful for the for the, the people who are coming to us, the patients and uh, with medical conditions. And uh, what is, what's your thought about 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 this idea of, of listening to patients and, and asking, you know, wh- you know, after the surgery, what is it that what would good look like to you? Uh, and, and, and then incorporating that. Have, have you what have you what is your thinking on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pretty positive on it. Uh, the uh, the uh, foundational uh, charter for this uh, came to me from uh, my friends and colleagues Susan Edgman Levitan and Mike Berry and Maureen Bizzigliano, who the past few years have been formulating and then promulgating the concept of the, what they call what matters to you medicine. The, 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 the aphorism they offer is instead of just asking what's the matter with you, to the people we serve, patients and families, ask what matters to you, and just that opening that door will lead to a set of uh, 
aims and, and concepts for design that are crucial. So it's what matters to you, medicine. Well, that means we have to listen. We have to ask the question and really listen. So the PREMS and PROMS approach, the patient-reported experience metrics and patient-reported outcome metrics, that's actually been around for a while, and it's developed well, and we now have tools. We have questionnaires and ways of inquiring in which are sort of asking the people, what, it, what was it like for you and what matters to you? If I were in an executive position now in a healthcare organization, I would try to get everybody lined up on the what matters to you inquiry and then use whatever helps uh, what you just said, which is, you know, you've, you've completed the surgery and the patient's about to go home and you sit down and say, tell me about it. What, what happened here? What did you, what did you see? What did you like? What did you not like? What would you do differently if, if, if you ran the place and, and make that a, a, a never ending inquiry? I think that's a really important thing. And, and if I, if I had to, uh, rank order metrics, you know, that's n number one. That, that idea of listening and any way you can, is, to me, is top, top of the heap. Well, and what would you say to, to folks, and, and I've had this, this conversation of PROMS versus the, the sort of metrics we are currently using, uh, you know, the idea that, well, the patients may not understand from a clinical perspective, we, we, we need to, you know, hit these metrics. What, is there a tension there, or is there both and from your perspective? It's both and, and there, there are important measures of the processes we engage in. Like, uh, if we intend, if we intend to do something, uh, because the science is so secure, do we actually do it every time? And if not, how about getting to 100%? And I think that that kind of process stuff is 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 pretty important when the science supports it, and we sh we should do that. The overall characteristic here is is not to wash your hands or reconcile the meds it's to be reliable whenever you want to be and that that organizational property of reliability is a very important one but but in the end you know Zev we can only judge those measures by the superordinate measure of what matters to you that if they if, they, if those metrics are not helping us if those uh, forms of reliability are not helping us match our work to the need then they are not quality. We've fooled ourselves. We, we, we substituted something that makes us comfortable instead of th the truth about whether we're actually helping or not. Uh, so it's a dance. I mean, it's never, never ending, but I think we need both. We need to measure the technical characteristics of our own processes, uh, to measure what people want, and then to understand the relationship between the two. Yeah, I, I love that word you used. It's it's uh, superordinate uh, to to listen to and adhere to the the metrics and outcomes from the patient perspective, but that doesn't mean you abandon the clinical ones. They that's the reliability. That's the under the hood. It should be you should be nailing those. Um, but but the you know how much do they? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I can give you an example. Of this I, uh, recently, unfortunately, my brother was in the hospital with very serious condition and he survived and is okay but he had to go to rehabilitation and I visited him in the rehab hospital many times and you know, I said to him David how's it how's it going here and I remember one day he said to me they're so scared they're so scared that's what he said he meant the staff everybody he said everybody here is worried about my falling it's like the whole place is designed to keep me from falling he said, I, I don't want to fall, but there's other important stuff around here, like am I getting my strength back, and, I'm, and you know, can I get to where I want to go? And he, he, you know, he listed a bunch of other aims. He said, I don't know what's going on, but this one goal has taken over my experience here, and it's not good. Uh, you know, it, it, here, what's going on there is the, the capture of the, of the uh of the intentions, the attention, the attention of the workforce around a accountability measure falls in rehab, which is important, but it's not the only thing. And there's a loss of, um, he was detecting, and I think he was right, a loss of uh, more capacious uh, mm -hmm. thinking around who he is, where he's headed, what he needs, what he wants, what's important to him, what matters to him. He would have told them, yeah, let's, let's be moderate about it. I, you know, let's do some stuff to help me not fall, and please explain to me what will. But no, I, you know, you, I'm not in jail here, and, I, and, and you need to help me do other stuff, even if, it risks, even if there's a little risk of falling. Well, I, I think you know, what comes to mind for me is the absence of bad doesn't make good. And, 
clearly you don't you don't want patients to fall for sure but at the same time the whole point is that you want them to be able to walk and to do what you know what they want to do i mean that's the whole point of it right uh to live their lives to have the strength to be able to walk and so i, I think you're right we lose that sense of people as uh being capable and and wanting to perform and wanting to live and uh and uh it, it it's it's so interesting to 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 the way you know again from the inside i think what i've heard and sort of the the sense i have of it is that this this uh you know the patient reported outcomes measures the, the what matters to you kind of conversation is almost kind of like a uh, thought of as sort of icing on the cake and i i really get the sense that um that the work the stuff we're working on is really just the foundation of the cake and uh maybe the first layer but um we we don't have the cake uh, baked yet it's you know this idea of actually really helping people achieve what they want to achieve uh with their lives that's why i mean that's why they come to us um and uh not just to prevent bad things from happening i mean that's that's a, a given we have to do that so that's the great story I, you know i want to ask you for some other stories uh, you're you're again you're going back to this uh, these nine principles and 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 moving forward and course correcting a bit are, are there uh, examples you have of um where people are hitting this where they're where they're getting the patient centeredness um and and really hitting the you know the the proms the idea of you know what matters to you are there i know you've spent quite a bit of time years looking at a positive deviance where people are doing uh something really well that the rest of us should should follow does something come to mind yeah the news is so good here i mean i i'm always looking for these and 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 uh and there are there are th- hundreds if not thousands of examples of individual cases of organizations or people who have taken the the redesign uh of care around what matters uh to to a whole new level uh, two examples i'll give you one one is uh, from sweden i've talked about this often and your listeners may already have heard me talk about it but it's thrilling um this is a story about uh a county in sweden sweden's a single payer system at the county level so this is called yunshipping county in yunshipping county there are three hospitals including a very fine teaching hospital rehof hospital uh in that uh, in that county uh, a, a young man uh, named Christian Farman uh, developed renal failure he got glomerulonephritis and he needed renal dialysis he was himself uh, an engineer a mechanic a very capable man and he he was uh, put on dialysis at the Rehove hospital but then he asked the nurses if he could do it himself he said i, I you know i'm pretty smart i uh, i uh, I'll be very careful it's me and and uh he said I'll bet that you can infect me more easily than I can infect myself so let me do my own dialysis and they let him do it uh that was in 2005 I believe I I have visited Rehov Hospital uh and now about half the patients there do their own dialysis this whole idea became the way they do things uh a former dialysis patient uh Patrick Blomqvist is now the co-director of the dialysis unit Uh, patients teach each other how to do their own dialysis they adjust their own machines the machine doesn't face the nurse but faces the patient cuz the patient's adjusting the dials and the the patients are putting their own their own uh uh, uh intravenous access in uh to 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 do the dialysis their own their own vascular access they do it themselves and the results are far better than they were before they did it themselves uh, just as christian uh said um a a a a a dialysis uh a nephrologist na- uh from um uh, from Texas uh, from Waco Texas uh, Dr. Richard Gibney heard about this he brought Christian Farman the the patient to Waco he taught uh that unit how to do self dialysis today they do self dialysis he he recently i believe has had a patient a blind patient uh do their own self dialysis uh and the results are great i mean fabulous uh this idea of uh improving uh, helping people do what they want and and improving their capability has been astounding uh astoundingly successful there's a wonderful example at parkland uh, southwest uh, uh ut southwestern university of texas southwestern parkland hospital uh there a young doctor named kavita bavan who i believe is an infectious disease specialist um she's developed uh 
what she calls self-administered outpatient antibiotic therapy. We're used to sending nurses into people's homes to do long-term antibiotic therapy, for example, if they have osteomyelitis. She doesn't need the nurses anymore. The patients do it themselves. And she's been doing this with very stressed populations, including homeless people, and has shown that the ability to do self-administered antibiotic therapy reduces hospital bed, bed days use and improves outcomes. Those are two small examples. I could go on for hours with others I've seen. And so, you know, the, the, the new era isn't uh, an imaginary uh, place. It exists. It just doesn't exist everywhere. Right. That, those are, I, 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 uh, I'm just kind of blown away by the, the self-service dialysis unit. And, and you're saying the results, the outcomes are, are actually superior to when you have, uh, you know, clinicians uh, doing it for patients. Yeah. Yeah, you go, go, go look. I mean, what, uh, what Gibney is, is showing for the subset of patients that are able to do self-dialysis is, uh, I believe, uh, the, the, the reduction in hospital bed days, complications, and deaths is of the order of a third to a half. Uh, the urine shipping unit uh, has had unparalleled uh, reductions in complication rates. Uh, from uh, for, for patients in dialysis, but it, you have you have to go and see it, and it's uh, it's pretty stunning. Uh, and, and the testimonials don't just come from patients; they come from staff. You know, one of the ideas of moving to this part of Era Three, this kind of co-production, uh, total engagement, uh, is at the outset it looks to the professions like some kind of loss, loss of control, loss of their value, fear of errors. After you're over the threshold, the, the places that have really embraced self-care in this case, uh, everybody's happier. The staff are far happier. Their, their lives have changed, and they're able to restore meaning to patients' lives in ways they never would have dreamed they could. Do you have thoughts about uh, other areas or conditions where this might spread, or are there already other examples? I'm you know, I'm just, that's where my mind was going. Where, where could we apply this sort of principle or are there other ways to do that? Uh, in yeah. Yeah, it's a, maybe too complicated a topic for a long discussion in this podcast. But, yeah, self-care and empowerment of patients, the way we're now talking about is applied in many cases. The, the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center has been doing this with children with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, I met a uh, or talked to a kid named Zach Wool, who's uh, at age eight or nine was trained to put in his own NG tube for uh, overnight uh, hyperalimentation uh, through gastric infusion. Zach has made a video to teach other nine-year-olds how to do how to put in their own NG tubes. Uh, I've seen uh, the, um, the the wonderful system in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Bell and Health uh, has been working with the county. It's in Algoma County, which is a stressed county, to empower uh, students in high schools to do plan, do, study, act cycles and projects on community-based health. And they've done some pretty interesting things uh, with uh, nutrition and, uh, and uh, other forms of pursuit of po population health. Um, there, there's a tremendous uh, progress in telemedicine now. I've seen uh, the work, for example, this is at the professional level, but uh, I, I love the work of uh, Dr. Sanjeev Aurora, in New Mexico, Albuquerque. Uh, Dr. Aurora is a hepatologist who was uh, frustrated with his inability to take care of everybody with hepatitis C in the state of, of, New, of New Mexico. He set up the ECHO project, which is a telemedicine project. In this case, the capacity building is not of patients. It's of uh, nurse practitioners and others who are staffing very remote rural clinics in in, uh, in New Mexico. And what Dr. Aurora was able to do was train these people uh, to do uh, state-of-the-art um, uh, care of, of, uh, of hepatitis C, he published this in the New England Journal. He showed that viral eradication levels in uh, hepatitis C patients in the remote clinics that he was coaching telemetrically were the same as or better than the viral eradication results for patients that got to the medical center in Albuquerque. And he's now generalized the ECHO project into... Uh, I think dozens of conditions that, that normally you would have thought would require quaternary or tertiary centers, but he's able to show how he can empower, he calls it a force multiplier, he can empower uh, clinicians in 
primary care settings to do things that formerly you would have thought couldn't possibly done be done in primary mm-hmm. care. I, w- I want to switch gears a little bit, although, uh, although not that much, but one of the, you know, when I think about your stories of Sweden and, and uh, the the one thing that strikes me about that country and the counties, the way they work, is that healthcare is not uh, seen as purely a, uh, a clinical uh, endeavor, that it's the, the local government, municipalities, uh, educational system, the civic system, uh, even corporations. So it's, you've got this sort of triad or quadrat where healthcare is really a community endeavor. At least that's the way I, I, I have interpreted it. Do you, you know, we don't see that as much. And again, I think a, a, a little bit some of the uh, community health work that's going on uh, around the country is beginning to do that. But what are your thoughts about that idea that taking it out of just the hospital, ambulatory, healthcare domain and, and making this a, a, a sort of triad, quadrad, you know, community, larger community type of uh, stakeholder endeavor? I think that is... Um crucial uh, and 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 really at the cutting edge now um, to, to go back to the science you know if you believe in the triple aim better care better health and lower cost you've got to look at the better health piece which which forces you to consider the true determinants of illness uh, they as I said earlier they do not lie uh, they're not accessible through health care uh, certainly alone health care is a relatively uh, weak um, lever for the production of health, well-being. That lies in communities. We call this social determinants of illness, housing, transportation, criminal justice system, uh, uh, issues of equity and equality and and income and and access, racism, uh, environment. Well, look, if we want healthy communities, healthy nation, we're going to have to get to the causes. And we talk about it now. There's more awareness, but the uh, the transformation of era three, and to me, it does include this beginning to move upstream to what really does matter with respect to health. The, this is people know this. I, I have the chance at IHI now to to help lead the leadership alliance. This is a group currently of about 35 or 40 organizations that have come together to pursue the triple aim. That's their goal. And the leadership alliance, uh, they're thrilling. And these are hospitals and group practices and others who are saying we're going to change our approach. And uh, I'll, I'll tell your listeners, they, they should check it out. Check the Leadership Alliance at IHI, and they've, they've, they've been meeting now. This is their fourth year of, uh, of work, and they've articulated ten principles of redesign, ten ways to get to the triple aim. And one of them is truly engaging the social determinants of health. Right now, this is honored mostly uh, in conversation but not action and uh, one of the great challenges of this decade now is to help healthcare organizations move toward the real causes a lot of them want to say well not our job you know i'm a hospital well, what would i what do i have to do with housing mm-hmm. uh, i'm a i'm a i'm a doctor what do i have to do with criminal justice and the answer is it it, it came with a territory when you decided to be involved in healing you you bought that problem, and and it, it you can't say oh I don't deal with that germ I deal only with this germ. You, you deal with germs, and the germs here are, lie outside your walls, and so we're going to have to find a redesign that that helps us get there. Again, I see tremendous examples. The, what I mentioned that work in Bellin, uh, in Green Bay, Bellin Health, they really really are working on true causes with the communities that they live in, with the work, with the, with the companies, employers, with the schools, and with others, and uh, they're not alone. You're watching a tremendous transformation, I think, underway at Kaiser Permanente, where um, uh, Bernard Tyson, the current CEO, is, is really saying, hey, everybody, we own it. We own it. Uh, we own the social determinants, and we're going to get to work. That's our work, too. I'm pretty excited. I, I'm definitely going to look that up. I wasn't uh, as aware of, of what's going on at the IHI and, and at Kaiser. I, I, I would I would push it a little bit and say that, in my observation, and we, we've you know I've been I've been uh, parts of, uh, I, I think you're right, conversations. Uh, interestingly, interestingly enough, looking at metrics, uh, 
where the employers will sit down with us, uh, typically with a third party, and you know, and they're sort of though at a distance. The corporations are still, and employers who who are are holding the bag, right? They're holding the costs as well as the impact of of illness and 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 lack of health in their employees. And uh, you know, the the local governments are also still at a distance, and they're sort of they're still working and looking at us and and shining the light at the healthcare system and saying, hey, you know, what are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? And I guess I'm asking the question or thinking about um, what if we actually reframe that? What if it was, look, maybe the stakeholders are the solution. And so it's not abdicating a responsibility on, on the clinical part, but it's saying, look, a lot of this can happen uh, in the employee, employment space. A lot of this can happen through, uh, you know, s- civic and, and municipalities. And again, we know through, you know, having sidewalks and parks and food, you know, eliminating food deserts. And so it, it, if we sat around the table and changed the conversation to what, how can we do this together? How can we, as you say, co-create it or co-develop this? That's, in my mind, that's been an inc- sort of an increasing picture that I've been seeing. I, I, I've not heard of that anywhere, except, again, for your, your examples that you've pulled from Sweden, where that seems to me, they seem to be the closest. But are you seeing that? Are you, are you moving towards that with the work at IHI, or is Kaiser moving towards that? Uh, yes to all of the above. I mean, uh, at IHI, uh, if you saw the strategic plan now, it involves, of course, making care better. That's one circle. And a big other circle is making community health better. And they overlap. Uh, the biggest project at IHI in this right now is called the, the 100 Million Healthier Lives Campaign. That's led by Dr. Shoma Stout. Uh, they now have well over 1,000 organizations uh, globally, m- many in the U.S., who are working on better health in communities. Some are healthcare organizations, many are not. Many are other stakeholders in the community. Uh, and I'm pretty excited by that. I think, as I said, I, I, my hat is off to Kaiser Permanente where I think they're very serious about finding a way to become better citizens in the pursuit of community health. And we know communities that have done uh, really brilliant things. I would say from the healthcare leader's point of view, though, he, here, here, here to me is the rather edgy assertion which is um, healthcare has accumulated such stock in the American healthcare economy, the political economy, the economic economy, that it can it is not irrelevant. It it doesn't have. There's no opportunity for healthcare to take a pass on this. You're simply doing too much that affects your community. The first thing of which is you're taking the money, but beyond that, you have tremendous gravitas in communities and. And and there need to be uh, there, there, healthcare's got to come forward on this and say we're going to be players in the creation of better health. And it's not, by the way, in the annex. It's not like you know an appendix to the report. It, it really we're talking here about making it in the core business, and that's unsolved. A good example of this that I love to see is what's going on at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. I mentioned before their stunning work on what matters to you medicine, especially with their inflammatory bowel disease program, which is now national. They also have done something very interesting under the leadership of Dr. Uma Kodagal, who used to be their head of quality. They've now moved into a project in the city of Cincinnati to try to help all the children of that city thrive. I think the number is 60,000 at the moment, children of disadvantage. And they've, they've, what they've done is they've set the table. They've become a convener. They know they can't do it on their own, but they know it can't happen without them. And so Cincinnati Children's has become the host, one of the key hosts, to citywide efforts to improve the well-being of 60,000 kids in measurable ways. We're not talking, this isn't hand-waving. It's, it's got goals and projects, and I think that's what I'm looking for. We need, we need statesmanship now at healthcare as never before seen um, to be a player, to be a host even at a table which includes many, many stakeholders who determine the well-being of communities. Will it fit the business plan? I don't know. Not now. I mean, this isn't, if you're all, if you're only after revenue instead of just mission, this isn't going to be that attractive. But I think times will change and I hope we're going to become a nation which invests in in the pursuit of well-being broadly Mm -hmm. writ. There's a, I know we're going to have to wrap up in in, in a couple of minutes. Um, there's a story I've heard you tell about uh, a patient of yours named Isaiah, mm-hmm. which really uh, brings home this point of uh, 
uh, to me, it was a you know just a, a real uh, statement, uh, a true statement, and a you know it's it's so heartfelt. Uh, why this shift uh, uh, is so important? Do, could, would you mind taking a minute to to share that story? Sure, uh, it, you know, it's very meaningful. I mean, when you're a doctor, you sometimes have a chance to a real privilege uh, with a patient. This was such a case. Uh, Isaiah is not his real name, but I. I protect his identity. He was a 15-year-old boy whom I encountered when I was officer of the day at the uh, HMO that I was a pediatrician in, and he uh, basically came in with back pain. It turned out he had acute lymphoblastic leukemia, a 15-year-old black child with the, with ALL. Um, he, uh, it's a very dangerous setup. The, the, the prognosis is not good at all, but um, the organization I was in, the Harvard Community Health Plan and its affiliated hospitals, we pulled out all the stops, and the clinical story was over about a three-year period. Um, he, uh, he 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 got cured. His, his his leukemia went away. He had a, actually had a relapse. He was cured despite relapse, which is remarkable. He had a bone marrow transplant. The leukemia went away and never came back. He was left with some medical problems, diabetes, and a few and other complications, but he was able to lead a full life. But the other side of Isaiah's life was that he was a he was a child of the streets. I mean, he had a lovely, committed mother, but he himself was a bit of a lost soul. He 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 had his. He told me he had his first gun when he was five years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he committed his first robbery when he was ten or twelve. Uh, he was always in trouble, and um, and uh, had, had was unable, unable to keep a job. Uh, uh, he he. Uh, he he was he was uh, he he had he had another problem, which is that he was in he was, he came from poverty and disarray and and was lived in in the in the wake of racism and and uh, and the condition of so too many people in our country. And uh, although he survived his leukemia over the subsequent years, uh, Isaiah Isaiah lost it. He 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 just couldn't keep his act together. Um, and he uh, he died. He had died on the street corner. Um, I don't. We're not exactly sure why. I think it was uh, possibly an insulin overdose. But something about his life fell apart. And it, it just. I, I've. Always, I mean, he's a lovely guy. We 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 talked many times. Uh, but this, we cured his leukemia, but not not the not the consequences of of inequity and deprivation in society. And that's not okay. I remember a moment when he was a, a kid, and we were talking about this, and he said to me once, uh, Dr. Berwick, I think I'm lucky I got leukemia, because at least when I'm in the hospital, when I'm in the hospital, at least I can't be on the streets. Wow. He said that to me. That's, uh, that kind of says a lot. Um, you know, and, and, and for the listeners, and I, I know many of the listeners are pretty sophisticated in their knowledge, but to me the story is... is not just about Isaiah, but you know this whole literature, and, and I think you know, Dom, you were you were alluding to it before that the clinical part, the, the clinical care that we do in this country and across the world is literally contributes you know ten, fifteen percent uh, in terms of impact on morbidity and mortality. Uh, you know, somewhere between forty to sixty to seventy percent is due to uh, you know uh, the other determinants of health: these socioeconomics, these psychosocial determinants, the behaviors that come from that. And so, I think we see these statistics, we see these numbers, we read these articles about the the social or, or determinants of health, and I think Isaiah's story really just you know shows it to us in in a real life example uh, of how this uh, you know can play out in in someone's life and. Um, so I, I really thank you for sharing. I know what's a really uh, meaningful story for you and, and now for, for us as well. I'm, I'm going to wrap, wrap it up, and, and thank you for being so generous with your time. But last question to you, is, is there any, any you know, in light of our conversation today, is there anything left unsaid uh, I, I, from your perspective? Is there uh, sort of a nugget or a takeaway that you would like to leave the listeners with? I'd like to leave with optimism. I think that the um, one takeaway is there there really are ways we can get better, but we're going to have to do it together, and we're going to have to use uh, 
science to do it. Sciences of, of, of complexity and systems that really do work. And there are methods out there, and if you're feeling lost, it, maybe you're trying the wrong way. And, and Zeb, I don't know if this is within the context of your podcast. I, 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 I personally have to take cognizance also of the political environment right now. I cannot imagine mm-hmm. an American society that's healing uh, without a commitment to care of the vulnerable, protection of the, of the disadvantaged, the pursuit of social justice and equity, the repair of our criminal justice system, a whole bunch of what I regard as progressive policies, which are currently under a very dark cloud, given the, the national ethos and our, and our national uh, and the leadership today, uh, it's not okay. And I, mm-hmm. I, I just can't help making a plea to the professionals who are listening to you in this podcast to, to be active in restoring a sense of social justice as the primary, as a primary foundation for our for our nation. And if the politicians currently in charge won't do it, and they won't, uh, then I think professionals have a duty, just as they do to improvement of the system they would do to duty to improvement of the moral foundations of the nation and that to me is part of era three as well so uh, excuse the political excursion here but it's, it's a time to be at, to be to speak up because what's going on is not okay uh, it's it's well within the scope and uh i i really appreciate you for for saying that and uh you know you're i you know one of the hallmarks of who you are for for the rest of us, is uh, you know, your courage uh, to say what uh, what often is left unsaid for lots of reasons, and uh, to step out of that and, and step up uh, in in a really moral way. And so, can't, I can't thank you enough. That may maybe, if not be one of the most important comments you made in our conversation today. And I will I will uh, take that upon myself as well uh, to think more about that and, and act on that. So. It, it sounds a little bit like a call to action to me, and so uh, I, I want to thank you, Don. I, I, I um, you know, I want to respect your time. I know you've got a lot uh, going on today and, and commitments, and so thank you for being part of this. I, I, like I said, I mean, that last comment you made, quite honestly, is is a, is a, an entire different conversation that we could have, and and perhaps if you're up for it, I, I'd like to um, extend the invitation to have that as a separate conversation because I do think that is. Um, there is this. Uh, if there are elephants in the room, that is one of them. And um, uh, I, I agree with you. We're not gonna, we're not gonna fix the system or get out of the dilemma without addressing that as well. So thank you, Don. Um, thank you, Zev. Invitation accepted. <laughs> great. <laughs> um, and, I, and as always, I, I want to thank our listeners out there. Uh, and uh, you know, these are folks who are doing the hard work each and every day at the front lines of care, or or supporting the folks that are directly delivering care. And and I know you are uh, all on your own hero's journey, and and takes tremendous courage uh, to stay in this and uh, not to give up. And and uh, I know if you're on listening, uh, you're you're one of those people. So thank you as well. Uh, this is Zev Newworth. You've been listening to Creating a New Healthcare and with a very, very special guest today, Dr. Don Berwick. I'm wishing you all good health and good living. Thank you. <laughs>